We are in a series called Imagine a Place. I, I think we are, as individuals following Christ, always going to bump into this invitation of God saying, but hey, can you imagine this? Hey, but can you imagine this? And a lot of times God is trying to stretch our heart and he's trying to stretch our mind and he's trying to get us to think bigger. I often wonder if God is claustrophobic in the boxes we place him in. And if God's like, man, I can't breathe in this small space that people keep trying to confine me in. And I, I just wonder, do you need to make room in your life and, and room in your heart and room in your mind for God to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine? I mean, that's, that's scripture for you. That's not my opinion. God says, I am able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you can ask, think, or imagine. That is quite the verse, and it is a promise in our life. And so it's leaning into the possibility that maybe, maybe just maybe, God wants to stretch our thinking. And so maybe today, you'll find that to be the case. Anyone ever had an epiphany? You ever had like an epiphany where you're going through life and something happens and you have this aha moment? It's like the, the light bulbs go off above your head. And those are amazing moments. I love epiphany moments. Now, those of you who know me well and are getting to know me, you know I, I tend to just overanalyze and stare at things probably a little too much, but it's just how I'm wired. And I'll find myself thinking, man, this is a really interesting concept. That for whatever reason, our creator hardwired humanity with the ability to have epiphanies. Think about that. God wired us for epiphanies. And I think sometimes we go through life and we'll bump into one here and there, but I can't help but wonder, does God desire for us to have more aha moments? Hey, something in your human faculties, something within the hardwire of your mind and your heart is this feature as an individual that you can have epiphanies. Scripture would also call those revelations, like, God, open my eyes to help me see something clearer. And I pray that as, as a community, as we lean into God's word and follow Christ as closely as we possibly can, I pray our lives are filled, filled, not filled, filled with aha moments. I pray that's the case for you. Today we're gonna look at arguably the most famous um, parable uh, Jesus ever told. If not the most famous, it probably would be the most important. This one is, is critical uh, to what Jesus is trying to accomplish in and through the world. But it comes to us once again in attention. Jesus was always caught in attention. You ever found that to be the case? When you're reading through scripture, you're like, this guy was a renegade. He was constantly just living with this reckless abandonment in pursuit of people and he just loved in a way that the world had never seen before and this type of love and grace and compassion that he extended to others, well, it created some confusion. I mean, it even caused those to pause and to think, is, is it even okay to love people as well as this man loves people? And so if you're new to the Bible, let me just give you some cliff notes on Jesus's life and his ministry. Jesus, one, he touched lepers, which they told him he shouldn't do. In addition to that, Jesus dined with criminals. 
which they said he shouldn't do. In addition to that, he befriended prostitutes, which they said he shouldn't do. And lastly, as a result, he offended Pharisees. If you're new to the Gospels, it's just like, hey, just know this, Jesus touched lepers, dined with criminals, befriended prostitutes, and in some unique, strange way, offended the Pharisees. There's always this tension between Jesus and the religious elite of his day. And you have to like look at it, what is going on here? And what you find is the, the tension was not surrounding theology. Jesus and the Pharisees, they believed very similar things. In fact, if you were to go down an itemized list of theology, you would find that Jesus and the Pharisees had a pretty unified theology. The tension wasn't around theology. The tension was around ministry. And you should know this as an individual who's seeking to live as a representation of God in the world, there's a difference between your theology and your ministry, what you believe and how you apply those beliefs to your world. And, and they just couldn't make sense of the way Jesus was applying his beliefs, the way Jesus was administering his theology. So at one point, the tension once again is rising because they see Jesus in relationship with people they assumed he should not have been in relationship with. And so it tells us in Luke chapter 15, now the tax collectors, which you'll see this delineation in scripture where it'll say the tax collectors and sinners. So it's like there's this whole camp of like really bad people, sinners, and then there's Tax collectors, these were like the worst of the worst. They got their own category. And it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I, I think this is fascinating. Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And people who were nothing like him liked Jesus. It's, a, it's an awesome idea. It says, but the Pharisees, which again, soundtrack moment, dun, 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 right? This is when. Joker shows up to fight Batman. And the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Oh, come on, church. Anyone thankful for a Jesus who welcomes sinners? Oh. For those of you who you're not clapping, you've yet to be told, so let me do you a favor. You're a sinner. You ragamuffin you. I think it's funny how we are trying to side skirt that conversation. There is this growing camp now in the world that thinks um, the word sin should be categorized as hate speech. Uh, I have friends who co-sign to this way of thinking and, and I love the argument. I'm like, bring it on, let's have this conversation. So I was talking to a group of my friends, and I was like, okay, so help me understand what you're saying here. You, you think sin should be categorized as hate speech. Um, well, one, know that we're just not projecting this on the people. We proudly stand saying, hey, I recognize my faultiness, but the goodness of God to overcome my brokenness. Um, but are you okay with a pastor talking about grace? And I was amazing because they're like, oh, of course, you can talk about grace. It's the sin part that gets uncomfortable. And I said, well, that's, that's such a contradiction. Where there is no sin, there's no need for grace. And you can't preach grace without at first acknowledging our need for grace. And they say, hey, 
Why does this man welcome sinners? And again, every time we read scripture, we gotta ask ourselves the question, what kind of God is this? And what kind of God are we serving? And as a result of the God we're serving, what kind of life should we be living? And if this is how the kingdom of God operates, how should the church operate? And if he welcomed sinners, can you imagine a place that follows suit? Because here's the thing, I know people from different walks of life and people who live in ways that are contradicting to our beliefs make us uncomfortable at times. But I would just say, begin asking the Lord to raise your level of comfort. Not in compromising, but in a way that allows you to stand fortified, also that God can use you as an instrument to maybe bless someone else's life. But if people can't come to church to discover Jesus, well, folks, where else do we expect them to go to discover the savior of the world? We have to create a space where it's like, hey, whoever you are, wherever you are, no matter where you're at, even if you're watching online, which, hey, fun fact, over the last 90 days, try to get your mind around this number. Over the last 90 days, our sermons have shown up on 590,000 screens in 90 days. Is that not amazing? That's a lot. Makes me a little nervous. I'm gonna start wearing makeup. But here's what we find about Jesus. Jesus was willing to be looked down upon in order to lift others up. He say, listen, I, I, will, I will leave the 99. And even if the 99 don't like it, I'll go after that one. He, he was okay with that. In addition to that, I have learned in my life, whenever Jesus is involved, and this is where these Pharisees got it wrong, whenever Jesus is involved, never assume the worst. I mean, it's so hard to trace the hand of God in our lives, and sometimes it's hard to trace the hand of God in the lives of other people, but it's just recognizing, I know the goodness of who my God is, and I know his promises and his plans in our life, and I know that in the same way, he is intimately connected to me, and he is working on behalf of me in my life, all to bring about his redemptive plan and purpose through me. Well, he's doing the same thing in the lives of every other human on the planet. That's what you have to understand. God is in pursuit of every person on the planet just as much as he's in pursuit of you and I. And so, hey, if, if Jesus is, if he's ever involved, I'm just going to operate with faith-filled assumptions. He's doing something to gravitate that person to his love and relationship. So if Jesus is ever involved, never assume the worst. And the distinction that the Pharisees struggled with and the distinction that some of us still to this day, we struggle with, and, and it's not to shame, it's just to say, ooh, this is a tension. Jesus kind of models for us that acceptance and approval are not the same thing. He, he kind of walked this balance. How do you be in relationship without giving license or enablement? It, it's a unique Tension that comes, I think, with spiritual maturity. Now, now know this, if you're just starting out, I think you need to be mindful in this space. It, it makes me think of my, my daughter, Riley. My daughter, Riley, is 
a, a great basketball player, and she has a, a phenomenal jump shot. I can't pass a lot of things on to her, but I will sit beneath the hoop, and I will rebound until she gets the shot right. You gotta have good form. And so early on, I used to drive her nuts because I would not let her shoot outside the paint, right, the, the, the close-in area to the hoop. Because I would tell her, hey, Team Johnson doesn't come with a lot of muscle. And so in order for you to shoot a three-pointer, you're gonna have to shoot it with two hands and you're gonna have to launch it from the hip and it's gonna look crazy. It's gonna be terrible form. You are only going to shoot at a distance that you can maintain your form. Does that make sense? And so, hey, it's important if you're gonna be a great shooter for you to master the fundamentals. As you get stronger, you can then start shooting at a longer range. And I think what happens, what trips a lot of people up, especially new believers, is they give their life to Christ and suddenly they wanna start shooting half-court shots. And so they hear something like, acceptance and approval is not the same thing. Yeah, let's go for it. And here's the deal. You don't have good form yet. You haven't developed some fundamentals. And you haven't developed the strength within your personal faith to really be able to strengthen and to serve someone else in their faith. And so you have to be mindful because sometimes people will prematurely try to run down this route. Oh, I'm gonna go out there and befriend some prostitutes and dine with some criminals and I'm gonna start doing all this wild stuff. And some of you, just as a pastor, I'll just gotta tell you, you're not ready for that assignment yet. You're just not ready for that assignment. But Jesus, we've seen, he modeled it. And in spiritual maturity, you can arrive there. So in this tension, and in these questions and the skepticism, why does this man dine with criminals? Jesus lays out three parables, back to back to back, and they all emphasize the same point. I mean, he doesn't do this anywhere else in scripture. It's like he says one and he looks at his audience and he's like, ah, oh, they're not getting it. So, so he says another one and he looks at his audience, ah, oh, sleeping again, he's not getting it. Okay, let's try it a third time, right? I mean, anytime God repeats himself, I mean, come on, we ought to slow down our reading and be like, what is he trying to emphasize here? So he first starts out, he's like, guys, it's like a shepherd who loses a sheep and tells a parable of the lost sheep and this guy who like finds his lost sheep and he comes back and he's like, hey, would everybody celebrate with me? I found my lost sheep. Ah, some of them don't get it. Okay, it's like a lady. Let's appeal to the, the ladies in the audience. It's like a lady who lost a coin and she tore the house up, swept through the house all to find the coin and then she finds the coin and she's like, hey, would you celebrate with me? Ah, some of them still don't get it. And so he launches into a third one, the parable of the lost son or more infamously known as the parable of the prodigal son. I'm gonna read a lot of scripture to you, but just take it in. It tells us, and he said, there's a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Talking about his sons, he divided it between the two. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out 
to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. It's a big deal. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I, I just sense in my heart the same thought echoes in the hearts and minds of individuals gathering with us this weekend. I am no longer worthy to be called your daughter, to be called your son. He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, hey, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and watch this, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to celebrate. I mean, this is a, a pretty, pretty fascinating parable. What you have is a father with two sons. And the younger son comes to him and says, I want my inheritance now. Well, folks, when do you receive an inheritance from your family or from your father or your mother? When they die. So the younger son comes to the dad and he says, essentially, I am wishing you dead. I want nothing to do with you. I just want what you have. And I want it now, all oh, the entitlement, the demands, the recklessness, the, the calloused heart, the inconsideration, give it to me now. Now this was a, a different time of history. Now things are more, a little easier to divide. We have money and counts that we can just, hey, take your portion of the money. But in this day and age, an individual's identity and life well-being was wrapped up in in their property, was wrapped up in their, their livestock. And essentially what the son is saying is, I want you to tear apart your life also I can have my part of the inheritance. I mean, I want you to forego and give up standing within the community. I want you to socially rip your life apart, because that was, that's what would have come with the standing that he had. I want you to socially rip that apart also I can have my inheritance now. And it's interesting to me because the son, he gets what he wants. I, I think this is such an interesting thing in which God works in our life. And what you find is this son was bent on self-discovery. And some of you, you will find yourself as we get into this, you align with the younger son. And I know in my life, there was a season where I, without a doubt, was the younger son. I didn't want 
anything to do with God, and I thought the idea of a God lording over my life was ridiculous. I'm going to be the Lord of my own life. I'm gonna make my own decisions, live for my own pleasures, live for my own purposes. I'm in charge. And you know what's interesting to me is, it's like one or two sentences later, and what do you find? He has wasted and ruined a good thing. He took his inheritance and already he's wasted it. And have you ever been amazed by our ability to ruin a good thing so quickly? Our ability to destroy a life so quickly? Here's what we sometimes overlook. And again, it comes down to the faultiness of our nature. Sin, it will cost you more than you wanna pay. And it will take you further than you wanna go. And it will keep you longer than you wanna stay. And it's interesting to me because the father lets him take a stab at it. I see my life in this a lot. My father did a very similar thing to me. I was raised in a really great home, <clears throat> great parents. I was raised within the church. <clears throat> but for whatever reason, something in my and my nature was, was opposed to the things that were being put, put before me. And so I was really rebellious and really bent on my own desires and, and it came at a, an expense and it came with an experience that really opened my eyes. And I remember talking to my dad and I said, hey, like, what was that season like for you? Which my goodness, some of you, you're, you're young people and you're making all these decisions and, and you're kind of living with your, yourself in mind, and, and I just wonder what would happen if you just paused for a second and thought, hey, how is this affecting mom? How is this affecting dad? Like, beyond myself, what are my decisions creating around me? And I asked him, I said, what was that like for you? And he said, it was terrible. I said, you know, why'd you give me so much space? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, son, Scripture is very clear. It says the wages of sin is death. He said, I hated watching it, but it was clear I had to give you a season to discover firsthand what your sin produces. And so I sat back. Also, you could discover and realize the byproduct of the things you were doing. And I did. I started to realize my relationships were dying. My desires, my dreams were dying. Academically, I was suffering as a student. Like, there was a lot of things that as a result of some of my decisions were suffering and it came with a, a moment where I hit rock bottom, but in some remarkable way, I discovered Jesus is the rock at the bottom. Even when you are at your lowest, you find that he's there with us. It's amazing. See, here's the thing. Our God is an amazing teacher. Anyone blessed to have your kids being taught and shaped by amazing teachers? I am amazed by teachers. In fact, I just show up to volunteer in classrooms, not because I'm that good of a parent, but I'm there to secretly try to gain tips as a parent as to how are you doing this? Teachers inspire me. I mean, I'm trying to wrangle in my four, but you show up to a first grader's classroom and you watch a teacher in a room with 35 children, and it's like the baby whisperer. They all just sit on the floor, behave. I'm like, how are you doing this? 
And what I've discovered is good teachers, well, they will teach according to your learning patterns. Would you agree with that? Good teachers teach according to your learning patterns. And here's the thing, God is a really good teacher. So some of you, you learn by visuals. And so all you need is to sit back and to observe the lives of others and say, oh, that's what those decisions produce and and that's what that kind of leads to. Okay, I kind of get it. I see in front of me the lesson. I'm a visual learner. Uh, Others of you, you're an audible learner. You're not much for reading and you don't really need the visual, but it's hearing audibly a lesson. So sometimes it's, it's a sermon or a podcast or it's sitting in a small group and it's the words of others landing on your heart and in your mind that, oh, now I understand it. You learn audibly. Others of you, you learn through written word. You're book smart. And I've always been jealous of you people. Like you can just sit down with a book and get it. It amazes me. And so some of you, you're just a student of God's word and, and you have been a, a faithful follower of Christ just because your ability to learn straight out of the text. But maybe you can relate to me. When I'm the type, I sometimes have to learn things the hard way. I just have to touch the stove to know it's hot. (laughs) And just know, if you're the type of person who has to learn things the hard way, God is a good teacher, is committed to teach you however you learn the best. And so this son, he, he hits rock bottom. And it says he, he turns. And what I love about it is the moment he turns, the father just runs out to him. He, the, the father stands ready. And, and some of you, you're not a Christian, you're not living in pursuit of God, and maybe just maybe you're here because there's something in your life that's shifting. There's something in your life that is opening your eyes to the fact that there's gotta be a better way, and this is not suffice and there has to be options out there, so maybe there's hope within the local church, and you're here, and you're turning, and your heart is opening to the possibility that maybe you were meant for more, and maybe there's a God in heaven who loves you more than you think, and the moment you turn, you're gonna discover a God who is patiently, but every single day, eagerly, leaning into the possibility of a relationship with you. Yeah, it's amazing. So he comes home, and he has his, like, his whole plan in place. God, I, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In fact, I'm not even here to ask you to make me your son. I'm not asking to be grafted back into the family. In fact, I'm not even asking to be one of your servants. Servants had better standings. They, they lived on the estate. They were kind of part of the family. I'm not even asking for that. But would you just consider making me a hired hand? Essentially, in his mind, what he's thinking is, Dad, I know I broke this relationship and I'll never have it back, but I'm here to pay off my debt. Maybe you can relate to that. I know I did. I came out of a season where there's a lot of shame and regret and things that I did in my life, and I was like, oh, man, there's so many things I need to pay off. Anyone ever been overwhelmed by the ledger of your life? Man, I'm, I'm living in the red. And what I love is the dad won't even hear him out. Shh, shh, quiet. What you're saying is nonsense. You ever heard someone just tell you that? Like, shh, stop talking. Just, just stop talking. The words coming out of your mouth are nuts. The father cuts him off. And he says, hey, bring, you know, a robe and a ring 
and sandals, all were things that I don't have time to fully unpack all the imagery, but basically he is grafting status immediately. He, he doesn't set him up on a trial period. He doesn't say, all right, I'm gonna give you 121 days to prove what you're saying. No, immediately he grafts sonship into his life. Immediately he welcomes him back. And some of you, you need to be reminded that the moment you just turn and say, all right, I'm coming home, you are immediately grafted into the family of God. There's no hesitation with our God's grace. I love that about our God. He doesn't hesitate with his grace. And so what does the father do? He's like, we are going to party. I mean, God is serious about our celebration. In fact, you go through the Old Testament, it's comical. He was so serious about his people having a good time and celebrating that he actually commanded them to have feasts. It's like when you tell your kid to take a nap and they think they're being punished. Don't you ever think to yourself like, I would love the day to come home and someone say, hey, you need to lay down. My kids think it's a punishment. I'm like, a punishment? This is a privilege. You get to sleep while I go cook dinner? What a privilege. And all throughout scripture, there's all these commands to, to have all these feasts and celebrations, and, and they started to be interpreted as like, a, I don't know, a pressure. Or maybe even just a, I don't know, some form of religion that robbed them of their joy. And God's like, no, I'm just that serious about you celebrating the goodness of who I am and what I wanna do in your life. We are gonna celebrate. That's why every single week, I'm like, hey, welcome to the party. I really think there's a theology for parties in scripture that you and I ought to just lean into the celebration often. And so he says, kill the fattened calf. Call everybody. I'm going all out for this celebration. This is amazing because the, the dad is breaking so many social cues in the moment. One, you know, he runs out to embrace the son, which the word run should be a trigger for us. Because in the day in which Jesus was living, there was this weird cultural norm that men didn't run. Which, my goodness, I'm so glad we've evolved from that. I'm thankful you can go for a run. But men didn't run, it was to, to look foolish. And if you were a distinguished man, you just did not run. And in this moment, there is just complete emotional and social abandonment. The father's like, I don't care what I look like. I don't care what people think, that's my kid. And I will stop at nothing despite the opinions being projected on me. I love my kid. And so he runs out there out of love to embrace the kid. When we were in Israel, and Kristen actually reminded me about this when I was gearing up for this message. She said, hey, do you remember our guide telling us about the prodigal in Israel? She said there's two reasons why he ran out there. One, he ran out there to embrace and to welcome home his son. But two, he ran out there because he knew that, that the community and the household would have been bearing the offense for him. And they would have been permitted to run out there and kill him before he got home. Hey, you have disrespected the man of this house. You have squandered his inheritance. You caused him to rip apart his life. 
You do not get to come back and insult him anymore. And so he just knew, hey, the people belonging to his house would have gone out and assaulted the son. My goodness, I just wonder if God, our heavenly father, tries to get out ahead of us Christians. Man, I, I just gotta, I gotta get out so I can love and embrace someone who doesn't know how much I'm for them because they might encounter someone who sends the wrong idea. Let me get out ahead of them. Let me be the first person they talk to. Let me be the first person they encounter because someone might show up and misrepresent what I actually think and feel. So he runs out there. I'm thankful for a God who runs out there to us. And so he says, let's celebrate. Now, in this moment, the spotlight of scripture shifts. And I think for a lot of people, this is where they stop reading. A lot of people make the mistake and stop reading where Jesus kept talking. And Jesus goes on to say, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. Ancient Palestinian entitlement sounds funny, doesn't it? I didn't even get a goat, Dad. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when, his, but when this, this son of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive and he was lost and is, and is now found. And what's amazing is the parable ends right there. At times, Jesus seems like a terrible storyteller. Just leaves us on the edge of a cliff like, but does, what happens next? Is it resolved? Does the older brother come in? What plays out? And I think Jesus was brilliant to leave his hearers on cliffs also that they have to wrestle through the questions of their own narrative. What happened in this family? What happened in the life of the older son? And see where the, the younger son was bent on self-discovery, the older son was bent on moral conformity. And his logic was, well, if I am just really good, I'll get what I want. Some of you can relate to the older son. And some of you, you're good people compared to your peers. See, we make the wrong comparison. Yeah, you can live a life of morality and, and be good, and you can look at some of the family members in your life and think, well, I'm a lot better than them. Look how good I am. But if you compare your life to Christ, you'd find some gaps. And that's where scripture says our righteousness is but filthy rags in comparison to the holiness and the righteousness of our God. 
And some of you have maybe fallen into the delusion of your own goodness. And here's the thing. We look at these two sons and we think they're really different. But when all said and done, they want the same thing. They want what the father has without the father. The younger son is just reckless. Give it to me now. He makes his agenda clear. But the older son, he's the one I'm most concerned about. The one who deep inside also wants what the father has without the father and thinks he has come up with a formula to make it happen. And in this moment, he doesn't realize he too is lost. And what concerns me about older sons is the younger son, because of how he approaches life, discovers what his life produces this side of eternity. But what makes me nervous about older sons is most times they don't discover what their life produces until the other side of eternity. Wait a second, I lived a good life. That wasn't enough? No. Because your standard of goodness lacks awareness of the magnitude of his holiness. Let me say that again. Your standard of goodness lacks awareness of his holiness. I mean, he is a big God. And what is the, what is the older brother upset about? Come on, lean into me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with this. He comes home. He comes home to a father who has divided his inheritance. Younger son took it and squandered it. And now he comes home to see, once again, his father doing something lavishly. Now, the first time he did it, it was like, well, that belongs to my brother. He can make his decision with his own things. But now when the older brother comes home, what does he realize? This celebration is taking place at my expense. Dad is now spending my inheritance to celebrate this bonehead of a brother. See, what's sad is this younger brother got a Pharisee for an older brother. But my goodness, have we been blessed with a remarkable older brother. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only firstborn begotten son who laid down his inheritance, who was stripped of everything. Also that prodigals like you and I could be reconciled back into the family. This is amazing. So wherever you are on the spectrum, whether you relate to the younger son or the older son, my prayer is that you would come home. And my prayer is that you would focus on the true superstar of this story. Again, we mislabel things because most people will call this the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means wasteful. 
spendthrift, excessive. What you find is the younger son is wasting all the possessions and the older son is wasting all the opportunity. But the true prodigal in this moment is the dad who's like, I will give it all. I will not spare an expense. All that I have, I will lay it down if I can have my kid back. That's the God you serve. And I pray that as we gather week in and week out, you are just constantly aware of God's deep love for you. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, hey, we're going to switch some things up as to how we kind of lead out salvation moments. I love when we have people raise hands. We're not gonna fully do away with that. I think it's important to make a public response at times. My only concern is there's weeks that it's like, hey, X amount of number of people raised their hands. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. What were their names? Did we pray with them? Did they get a Bible, a reading plan? Are they connected to a group? Who are they? And uh, that makes me nervous sometimes. I just don't wanna see raised hands, I wanna see changed lives. And as a church, we don't just exist to make decisions, we exist to make disciples. So are we setting that person up for success? And so if you're here and you're new to the faith and you wanna place your faith in Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to just text YES to 85379. And we're gonna be building this out and in the days to come, uh, I will even be adding uh, just a course of foundational videos on the faith that can set you up. But if you text yes to 85379, you will receive a text uh, every day this week in your, with a devotion for your first week with Christ. And, and we wanna make sure we set you up for success. And so whoever you are, wherever you are, at all of our campuses, if you're not a Christian and you wanna be a follower of Christ, text yes to 85379, amen. Well, this time I'm gonna ask everyone at all of our campuses to stand to your feet as we... Uh, Go to the Lord in prayer. We're gonna pray. We're gonna head into baptisms. Scripture says that once you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you ought to go public in your faith. And right now, some of you are receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior, and maybe now you feel the tug on your heart to say, hey, I'm going public. And if you would wanna be baptized in this moment, we have everything needed and prepared for you to participate in today's baptism. All you have to do is come forward to the, the right of the platform, your left, my right, and uh, we have volunteers ready and in place to help you get baptized today, and we wanna celebrate that with you. But one more time, can we just celebrate everyone at all of our campuses being baptized? Outstanding. Well, let's pray, and we'll go into worship. God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for all the lives that are being changed by who you are and what you seek to do in and through our lives. And God, thank you for being a good father. Thank you for sending an amazing son, our eldest brother who laid down his inheritance, all to restore us into the family. Thank you for welcoming us as kids home. And God, we celebrate the new life that people are experiencing in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.